What is up, everybody? What is up, Real Me In listeners? This is Joel Copling with another installment of For Your Isolation. This is the series uh, devoted to folks out there who are in quarantine, self-isolation, lockdown, whatever your situation is. Uh, we're here to to uh, to give you some content to listen to and also give you some movie suggestions for stuff to watch, uh, whether it be streaming or rentable, what have you. If you if you own it and haven't watched it yet, hopefully we can get you some uh, some titles to watch. And this is an episode on the best films of 2002. Now I am not alone. I'll introduce my uh, my guest in just a second. Just a reminder to share this podcast, subscribe uh, wherever you get podcasts. We're on most of the places: Spotify, iHeartRadio, iTunes, etc. I might sound better to folks, and that's because I am recording with my with my microphone. We are actually recording on Spreaker. It's a long story, but we have co- we have gone back to Spreaker uh, just for this particular episode, unless something happens in the future. Um, so yeah, long episode there, uh, long long story there, I should say. But we are back on this, um, and I am not alone. I am joined by my friend Chad Hill. Now this is his first time. On a podcast, so uh, Chad, welcome both to my podcast and to podcasts in general. Uh, it's good Yay. to have you. How how are you over yeah. there? I'm doing well. Um, hold, holding up, holding down the fort down here in uh, Arkansas. Good, 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 good. I'm I'm very glad to hear that. Um, I know that that you've uh, haven't you been going to work? Uh, yes. Uh, okay. So my uh, my employer is classified as an essential business yeah and so that means that i have still been working uh regular hours and going into work so wow all right well i again you know hope you're hope you're staying safe over there um yeah i'm going back to work this weekend so i i totally understand it texas just opened up some things um mm-hmm. limited in a limited capacity um but yeah so it's kind of it's kind of nerve-wracking but yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay with it. I think that uh, I was saying this yesterday on the podcast that I recorded. Then, I think I would be more nervous if Texas was in a worse position. Uh, but we are we are doing fairly well with cases these days, and um, you know it could be could be a lot worse. So, well, it's good to have you. Uh, this is the first evening during which uh, we have been verbally talking to each other, which is crazy because we've been. Uh, right, sort of, s- sort of like with Thomas, one of my previous guests. Uh, this is the first time uh, we've talked in eight years of online f- friendship. So, uh, kind of crazy, but yeah, yeah good, good to crazy. talk to you. Good to talk to yeah, you. All right, and, uh, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for, uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah. First, especially because 2002 is amazing uh, for movies. I, you know, I just found myself making a list. And realizing, literally, I could just throw it up in the air, it could come down in a different order, and I'd be fine with that. Um, just because all of these movies that I'm about to mention on my list are fantastic choices, uh, I think, of course, because it's my list, but I think that they're just really, really quality choices, and so, yeah, I'm excited to get into it. So, just a reminder for people, uh, 2002 for the Academy was the year of Chicago, Uh Rob Marshall's big musical extravaganza. I haven't seen the movie in a long time, so it's not going to be on my list. I remember being fine with it generally, um, but I don't. I don't have many memories of it. 
So it's not on my list. Is it going to show up on your list? Um, is it? It was a last minute cut for me. Okay. Because uh, as I've been a long time kind of notorious uh, detractor of musicals in general, I'm <laughs> growing out of it. But you know, it's uh, it's been an acquired taste. But Chicago was always one that, for whatever reason, it just clicked for me. You know, the mm-hmm. the whole razzle dazzle of it and the the presentation and the performances. I mean, that's uh, that's one um I'm trying to remember Renee Zellweger and uh Captain, Captain Zeta Jones, Jones yeah extremely charming and uh surprisingly John C. Riley, although mm-hmm. coming off a string of a lot of really great roles, uh had a had a really great performance. Uh, you know, Nom- that, nominated uh, for that one, Mr. I believe. Cellophane. Yeah. Yes. Um uh, and so yeah, it's one that I like. I'm familiar with the stage show too. Uh mm. it's one I like a lot and yet yeah, it's it's it just there's a lot of stuff to cover here uh just got bumped out yeah yeah for sure it's a it's a competitive year i mean there's a there's a lot of stuff that i had to take out a lot of stuff i couldn't get to either uh i tried to do a little bit a little bit of homework but anyway ended up being abbreviated slightly but uh but yeah so let's let's get into it uh we're not again we're not going to be doing you know like honorable mentions uh if something on chad's list is a is an honorable mention for me i'll mention that fact and vice versa, but we're not going to devote a segment. You know, we've got enough to talk about as is. So, um, so let's get into it. So, Chad, what is your number ten film of two thousand two? So, I'm gonna start my list off with a fairly uh, populist pick. Uh, <laughs> not necessarily saying that that's a bad thing, but you know, um, it's a uh, and this is a uh, pretty well known. It's a kind of a cable TV staple, and for. Uh, for that reason, I think it tends to be taken for granted in a lot of people's minds, and that's uh, the Born Identity. Mm. Um, if you're familiar with it, uh, Matt Damon plays Jason Bourne, who is uh, at the beginning of the film is uh, fished out of the water by a fishing boat in the Mediterranean Sea, and when he comes to, he has no memory of who he is, where he comes, uh, where he comes from, how he got in this situation, and uh, he has a few leads. He has some uh, items on his. Uh, person when he's found that uh, that point him in the direction uh, when he makes landfall in Europe and as he goes along he suddenly realizes that he has these skills uh, for that are very uh, friendly to espionage <laughs> yes very friendly to, to espionage and uh, that unravels the mystery meanwhile his handlers across the pond in the u.s uh discover that he is still alive and mm-hmm. uh are intent on tracking down and uh, and killing him, him yeah control oh yeah yeah getting or killing him <laughs> yeah either right, way yeah, yeah. <laughs> right either way um but yeah this is one that i think again like i said before i feel like it's uh kind of taken for granted as this uh kind of slam bang action thrower and also kind of overshadowed by its sequels which are you know, more frenetically stylized and have this more paranoid lens at Paul Greengrass, uh, the director of uh, both the Bourne Supremacy and the Bourne uh, Ultimatum, and even the later, se- most recent sequel, Jason Bourne. Uh, just, you know, that's kind of what kicked off Shaky Cam as a general mm-hmm. approach to filmmaking that has been considered a plague on uh, action filmmaking for the last decade or so. So, the Born series, when you think about it, it, really is kind of encapsulated by those films. But I, re-familiarizing myself with the Born identity, uh, going back and watching it again for the first time, I was 
shocked how much it revels in just simplicity uh, and just straight ahead action direction from uh, director Doug Lyman. Uh, and it's just from the get go, it's just this very efficiently uh, told tale of giving you all these pieces of who he is, one at a, who Jason Bourne is one at a time. And you see him going through the journey of figuring out what he knows and uh, trying and getting these pieces and trying to piece the story together. It's yeah. just no nonsense. Um, and Tru- truly no nonsense. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. No nonsense uh, is a great way to put this one. I, 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 it's an honorable mention of mine. Um, I love Matt Damon in this role. It was such a strange role for him to take on uh, at that point right. in his career. You know, he had already won an Oscar by this point, but um, but he hadn't really done anything like this. And it's, you know, the closest thing was his role in the Ocean's Eleven movie. But, but yeah, I mean, beyond that, he hadn't really done anything like this before. Certainly not this populist, as you say. It's really good. And I love this series as a whole. I'm a fan even of the, the later two um, that people don't tend to like. And uh, just rewatched through this whole series just recently in, in quarantine with my parents, and uh, and love it. I, I, I love it. And yeah, this is this is an honorable mention. Couldn't 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 muscle its way onto the list for me, but I but I do appreciate the pick a lot. And uh, right, yeah. So it's a it's yeah. a good pick. So your number ten, the Born Identity, and my number ten is very different. I think that we're going to be getting to this one on your list a little later on, uh, and that is Twenty Fifth Hour from director Spike Lee. Um, interestingly enough, I think that this was the first Spike Lee movie I saw, um, which is kind of an unusual choice. I got to some other stuff later on, certainly Black Klansman, because it came out way after I saw this. Uh, but I blind bought it from um, from some video store sometime. Uh, and I was just like, you know what, I'm curious. I'm going to watch this. And yeah, I watched it was blown away. This is one that stars Edward Norton as uh, Monty Brogan, who is a drug dealer and he's basically cornered by the DEA um, and sentenced to seven years. And the movie is about the last 24 hours before he is uh, sent off on that, um, that stretch in, in, in prison. And uh, it is, this is a great cast, not just Edward Norton, but Philip Seymour Hoffman. He's going to come up again, certainly on this, on this episode. Um, Rose, uh, Rosario Dawson, an early role for her. Uh, Brian Cox. Um, yeah, I, I I love this cast. I love this movie. I think that uh, it's such a complex study of character. Ultimately, uh, there are thriller elements here. I don't think that it favors them um, to the to the ex- you know at the expense the ex- uh, at the expense of its um, uh, at the expense of its characters. Uh, which is, I think, the smartest thing that this movie could have done. Um, and it's a really, really smart movie. It's it's crushing uh, in the, in its final scenes, particularly this final uh, speech that the Brian Cox character gives um, is just devastating. There's a speech in a car, um, really just a whole inter- interaction in a car that will always stay with me. And... Um, yeah, I, I just, I love this movie. I love the style. I love what it's saying about, uh, you know, post 9-11 society. I think that it's probably the first movie to do that. You know, since then we've had movies that have tried to do that, like um, uh, Margaret from uh, from Kenneth Lonergan and Remember Me, 
the movie with Robert Pattinson ultimately revealed itself to be about that. I think even something like War of the Worlds uh, tried to tried to comment on this in a certain way. Um, and really, any movie about in the intelligence world of the government after the after nine eleven. Uh, but in this way, though, it was a very touching kind of just uh, you know literally like on the ground examination of what it was like in the year after that happened um and yeah just a really strong film from from spike lee one of the better one of the better ones i've seen from him um yeah i i would agree with that i i think it's one of his best films and we'll again we'll talk about it a little bit more whenever (laughs) we get to it on my list but uh yeah that was one of the things that um i always wrestled with um for the film is how it dealt with Mm 9-11 um because it's not obvious from the get-go other than the symbology. And I guess at the time when I saw it, I wasn't, I don't know, I didn't really have that connection to it, uh, to that tragedy that I had gained after years since when I revisited Mm -hmm. it. But yeah. Yeah. It's fantastic. It's, it's great. And Norton's great in this. Um, It's fantastic. All right. Well, uh, that's my number 10 is 25th hour. So we're up to your number nine. Yeah. So my number nine is Gore Verbinski's The Ring, which is a remake of a Japanese horror film. I believe that this was the first uh, in a string of uh, films and adaptations that Hollywood was cranking out in the 2000s of Japanese and Asian horror films. And um, arguably that trend, uh, probably this might be the only great one that that trend ever produced. I think there may be an argument to be made for uh, the grudge t- uh, two years later, but um, the ring uh, summarizing what this is about. This is a uh, Naomi Watts in this film plays a journalist who, after her um, her niece uh, turns up dead mis- under mysterious circumstances, she finds this uh, videotape that she watches and is full of all this macabre imagery um, that's just unexplained and very very dread-inducing and, and gross, and whenever she finishes the tape, she receives a phone call informing her that she has seven days to live. And so the film kind of tracks her progress investigating what this tape is and what the phenomenon behind it is. And just as a horror film, it is uh, surprisingly um, surprisingly gets under your skin. It's a, it's a PG-13 horror film, which is kind of a brand of death for any... Uh, for any hopes of a horror film being good, but this makes such effective use of um, its imagery um, to really get under your skin. Just that tape feels kind of like a Nine Inch Nails video uh, in a Mm. lot of ways, just with the anger cranked down and the dread cranked all the way up. And one thing, one recurring motif throughout the film is uh, just that the little snippets that you get in that videotape bleed into the editing of the actual film that you're watching. And so it kind of turns the film itself into its own kind of cursed object that you're watching. And it just has this very just incredible uh, cumulative effect over the course of the whole film. Um, of course, there's all kinds of iconic imagery. You know, you're familiar with the, the you know, soak, sopping wet, uh, long black mm-hmm. girl. It's kind of a, uh, kind of a uh, trope. For, Jap- for Asian horror film at this point. It's probably the most familiar thing, uh, recognizable image from many of these films. Um, 
But just one of the things that I appreciate the most about this film is, again, just the style of it. Gore Verbinski, who, you know, everyone would know from the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise and uh, and stuff like uh, The Lone Ranger, you know, which some people are more of a fan of than others um, <laughs> and things like that, who he's just drenches this movie in this is a very moist movie. And that's pretty standard for a lot of uh, these Asian horror films is to be kind of just have this very wet um, visual to them. And that's including uh, the film uh, Dark Water, which the director of the original Japanese ring released this same year as uh, this American remake came out and uh, has that same quality. But the thing that Gore Verbinski really brings to this is not just the moistness, but just that everything looks so sickly Mm. and, and, uh, and it has this wonderful effect. It's the same kind of thing that he would go on to do uh, with The Cure for Wellness a few years ago. It's re- arguably The Cure for Wellness is probably the aesthetic of this film cranked up to 11. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's got several killer jump scares. Naomi Watts is a wonderful protagonist. And uh, thinking about the script, this may be the only good script that Aaron Kruger has ever produced. <laughs> I don't know. But, you know, hey, everybody's got one. <laughs> right <laughs> that's a good so, that's a good point there you go except for the yeah. except for the dudes who do like date movie and stuff they don't they don't have any but uh <laughs> there you go uh yeah this is one that i have not seen i wanted to catch up with it just didn't it just didn't uh ultimately happen but but my number nine uh i i have heard great things and i will see this i love Verbinski and i've made that clear on this show before uh dead man's chest was on my top 10 of 2006 so um yeah big fan of his where other people are not uh so i will definitely see this but my number nine uh it's <laughs> this is my bad joke for the uh for the podcast maybe not i'll probably have some others but um uh, you, almost certainly <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh but my number nine also has to do with the ring you know it, it's the lord of the rings the two towers uh <laughs> so yes. there you go of course, uh, of course, we we knew it was going to show up, <laughs> right? If not on my list, then on yours for sure, because uh, I know that it's probably higher for you. Uh, of course, continuation of Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy, um, and this one, uh, Frodo and Sam, played by Sean Astin, or well, Elijah Wood and Sean Astin, uh, team up for the first time, but very reluctantly, with uh, with Andy Serkis's Gollum to you know get the ring closer and closer to to Mount Doom. Um, while uh, Aragorn and Legolas and and uh, restored Gandalf um, and all of them basically rally or try to rally troops while one of the major kings in Middle-earth has been uh, infected by Saruman, uh, Christopher Lee's uh, major villain in the in the franchise. You know, of the... I'm going to reveal which, which one is my favorite of the three theatrical cuts next week which probably just gives it away but my favorite lord of the rings movie in general counting all of the uh the extended cuts is the two towers extended cut uh which is amazing uh really really amazing um and i just love the battle of helm's deep i mean that's i mean if if not for everything else that gets it on my list alone like that action sequence that this movie builds up to is stunning uh in every way and um 
I, I just, yeah, it pretty much is that that gets it on the list. But otherwise, I mean, just the journey, the, the developing friendship between, if, if it had already been developed in Fellowship of the Ring between Frodo and Sam, which just gets, gets closer and closer. Um, the, you know, the character moments involving Aragorn coming into his own, um, you know, and, and all the stuff with Grimma Wormtongue played by Brad Dourif, who's just deliciousness in this movie. He's, he's awesome. Uh, he's kind of an alternate Snape. Um, yeah, I love it. And I mean, there's really not much I can say about this at this point. I've talked about this movie a lot elsewhere, so I'm running out of ideas here, but, mm-hmm. uh, it just is, is big and epic and visually stunning. And it's just one of a great trilogy, uh, that I love. And mm-hmm. we'll be getting to the first film, which is much higher on its list than this is on this one. But, um, but yeah, I mean, again, these movies are all fantastic. This is somehow only number nine for me. It could easily be higher in a different year, but yeah, that's where it, that's where it, uh, that's where it falls this, this particular year. So I know that we're going to be getting to this one later for you. Yes, we will be talking about later. And I mean, just, this is going to take a little bit away from anything that I have to say about, (laughs) but just at this point, these movies are like, or they're basically like the Godfather, where <laughs> their yeah. greatness is self-assumed. Like you don't, mm-hmm. there's um, there's nothing left to say about them at this point. Yeah. They're so ingrained <laughs> in the culture, and they've been just so dissected uh, for all the little minutia and pieces for how, just the mind-boggling scale at which mm-hmm. this thing's been put together. You know, yeah. and how how seamless it is. But yeah, it's yeah. yeah, it's amazing. And and the Godfather comparison is perfect because. I mean, if for certain generation, it basically is. I, it, it really is. I mean, they're all interconnected. Uh, they're all pretty well beloved. Uh, you know, the the Godfather movies were by the people who were around our age when they came out, and now we got this one. And yeah, I mean, it is. It's very much so. And I think you know, I mentioned this on last week, uh, on the last episode last night. Um, but you know this one just paved the way so much for stuff like the Marvel franchise to even be a workable idea, and this combined with a Harry Potter franchise, interconnected stories uh, told over a long period of time. I mean, we wouldn't have the Marvel franchise without this laying the base for something like that. For people to keep coming back to a theater for big, gigantic productions, I, I don't think that it would have happened without Lord of the Rings, and it's yeah, it's fantastic for that reason too. So, all right. Well, we're we're up to your number eight. All right. So my number eight is uh, Pedro Almodovar. Almodovar, yes. Almodovar, Pedro Almodovar's melodrama, um, Talk to Her, one of a series of just like, just home run films, like all throughout the 2000s, like starting with all about my mother in 99 all the way through skin i live in in 2011 just this guy was just batting just crazy hundreds every time Uh, yeah (laughs) yeah every time for me personally and this is one of my favorite movies is talk to her um this film uh, was the winner of uh the best screenplay in uh best original screenplay yes yeah uh, at the Oscars in, two, in 2002, and I think it's just fully well-deserved. So uh, this film follows the story of, uh, in Spain, we have, a, um, we have a journalist who, while doing a profile on a female um, matador, uh, bullfighter, uh, they 
begin a relationship and fall in love, only for her to undergo an accident uh, during a bullfight uh, where she falls into a coma. And while visiting her in uh, in the hospital in care, he this journalist ends up meeting a nurse named Benigno, uh, and Benigno is carrying is caring for another coma patient, a young uh, young dancer named Alicia. Uh, and she's been in a coma for about four years at this point. Benigno, it's pretty clear very quickly that uh, Benigno has some sort of very unhealthy relationship with Alicia. Um, and it's without spoiling any, anything, um, the film kind of explores where that goes. But the interesting thing about Almodovar is just throughout his career, he's had this really strong transgressive streak, but has been able to very well marry that with this, uh, with this melodramatic um, emotion to it that's just warm and swooning, but also, and you see this more in that string of films during this time that I mentioned, that has this very hushed passion and vibrant color that expresses so much. And this is definitely the case for Talk to Her. It's just visually sumptuous. Uh, cinematography is by, and there's another name I'm going to butcher, is uh, Javier Aguirre. Aguirre Sarobe, I think. I think. Uh, yeah, yeah, I can't like <laughs> um, and, But it's also just so delicate, particularly the way that, you know, whenever those transgressive elements get folded into his films, and arguably this string of films kind of had a lot of those transgressive elements uh, pulled back uh, a little bit. But whereas some of the work that he was doing in the 80s, which which I am a fan of, but, you know, they were a lot, I guess, messier and kind of more um, wild and free. This kind of takes it seriously, more seriously a little bit, where it takes time to give his outcast and arguably his monsters an emotional understanding without excusing the things that they do. Mm. Um, this is a film, again, without spoiling anything about the way the film goes or anything like that, it's a film that's gotten a lot of... Uh, particularly recently as people kind of rediscover it um, after the fact has gotten a pretty vocal negative reaction uh, from a lot of people in online film community and um, his film, The Skin I Live In, elicited similar reactions, which I think is just generally his, his best film in my opinion. Um, but um, I think to, for people to go with that reaction of, you know, calling him a misogynist and for, for a apologist for certain behaviors uh, I think is to wholly miss the point and to read uh, read false intent into this film because I think it's when it comes down to this film it is about the true tragedy of loneliness um, that's created by a lack or an absence of communication um, between people and for people and how that not only hurts the people that are experiencing that lack but how it, how they maybe can then um, in that loneliness um, pass that on on to other people um, yeah this is another one that i missed uh i really need i really do need to get into amadovar more i've seen uh julieta i've seen um pain and glory but i i have not seen anything else and right. i really need to get into it. I, I do own a couple of them i own all about my mother i own talk to her and i just wasn't able to get to it um but yeah man i really do need to get into his stuff because i've been impressed for sure, with what I've seen, um, particularly Pain and Glory. Um, and, fantastic. And 
unfortunately i have not seen pain and glory. oh really I okay i don't i don't think i've seen anything that he has released since the skin i live in most oh. mostly because they've got all kind of gotten some muted reception beyond ah. pain and glory but yeah. uh but no i think for a solid you know was it 12 13 year stretch he was he was doing the best work of his career yeah um, yeah and i think this is definitely a highlight of that well, it's interesting because the director of my number eight film is another person who likes to use melodrama, uh, and that is Todd Haynes with uh, Far From Heaven. Um, mm. This is – I haven't seen all of Todd Haynes' movies, but I've seen films like Safe. I've seen this. I've seen Carol. I've seen Wonderstruck. Uh, I think that's it. And of those, this is this is my favorite. Um pretty uh, by by a by a fair stretch i i really like safe i like carol uh not over the moon for carol like most people are but i think it's good and i wasn't a huge fan of wonderstruck but far from heaven oh my gosh this thing is gorgeous from beginning to end uh this one stars julianne moore as a housewife in the 50s whose husband played by dennis quaid uh is revealed to be gay and uh this causes a minor scandal and there's also uh some racial tension going on uh when it involves her uh gardener played by dennis haysbert another dennis um and it's just gorgeous this thing this thing understands color this thing understands texture and it also understands its actors and the strengths um this is some of the best work in moore's career she was nominated for this lost ironically enough to her uh, co-star in the hours Nicole Kidman um, but of the nominees I haven't actually haven't seen Kidman but the of the nominees that I know of I would have had her win because there is just such a compassionate portrait here um, all the way through and uh, just as you know it's a it's about a romance that's seen as taboo in a period of time when you really don't want to be, or or maybe you do want to be, uh, going out and 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 trying to just just change the perception through tiny little movements, and it's just really beautiful to watch when it's a director who knows exactly what he's doing with his material, and that is the case here with Haynes. Um, again, a director I need, I do need to see uh, a couple of his movies, and I'm trying to think. What were they? He did uh, I'm Not There. I haven't seen mm-hmm. that yes. one. Yeah. Um, do need to see that one. He's done a couple of other things that I just, I missed. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I love this film. I love the performances. I think Haysbert's really strong. I think Quaid is pretty heartbreaking. Um, yeah, I love this movie. So, my number eight, yeah, it's a, Far From Heaven. Yeah, it's a, it's an honorable mention for me. And, nice. Uh, Again, another difficult one to leave off. It's just, oh my God, it's such a gorgeous film. And again, similar to Talk to Her, it's just, it's sumptuous, it's broiling with emotional tension. And yeah. particularly when I saw it, I happened to have the benefit of seeing it after, uh, I don't know how familiar you are with the work of Douglas Sirk, but uh, this film is clearly, like just from the get-go, from the visual language and the colors to even the basic plot setup is a is Todd Haynes' riff mm-hmm. on... Um, Far, no, not far from heaven. <laughs> this is far from heaven. All that heaven this allows. Heaven. 
all that heaven allows. Yeah. Yes, um, something else with heaven. All, in it. <laughs> yes, all, yeah. Clearly, a riff on uh, Douglas Sirk and his th- the themes that he was interested in, and mm-hmm. is a clear continuation away from where Sirk was um, back in the fifties. Um, not just uh, remaking; it's basically a remake of that film, but also just an elaboration and extension of it. Uh, it's just—it's wonderfully done. It's beautifully, beautifully captures the spirit of it. Nice. All right. Well, we're up to your number seven. Yeah. So my number seven is Road to Perdition. Mm. Uh, this is Sam Mendes's uh, 1930s gangster flick, uh, set in Chicago, set in, well in and around Chicago rather. Uh, so this is a film. It's a uh, adaptation of a graphic novel, um, which is um, interesting. Whenever you think of comic book movies, something like this is not what comes straight to mind. But it really is interesting the way that it's deployed. Um, going into what the film is is about, uh, basically it centers on a father and a son. The father played by Tom Hanks, and the son played by young uh, Taylor Heshlin. Uh, you might be familiar with him if you watch uh, saw Everybody Wants Some. Uh, he was one of the uh, college guys in that film. Um, <laughs> there's a very fun in a very fun role there. But uh, Tom Hanks is essentially he is an enforcer for the local mob, and he works directly for uh, for Paul Newman's uh, kind of a mob local mob boss uh, in that area, and uh, he works as a fixer and a hitman for him. Um, which is something that the son is kind of beginning to pick up on the shady dealings going on uh, when the film picks up. And basically the, the son eventually tags, tags along in secret on one of uh, his assignments and witnesses a murder um, carried out by Paul Newman's son, uh, played by Daniel Craig. And, um, and as a result from that, um, they ends up uh, Daniel Craig ends up murdering uh, Tom Hanks's family to cover up the murder and what happened, and um, Tom Hanks and the son end up going on the run together um, to try to Tom Hanks try to seek some sort of revenge and justice from um, from the mob. It's just uh, one of the things that this film is most famous for uh, is this being the final film uh, by famed cinematographer Conrad Hall and a lot of people consider it to be one of his best um, just an absolute masterwork you think of there's a scene late in the film that's basically this slow uh, slow motion drawn out shootout slash execution that all takes place in the in the middle of the street in the rain and it's one of the most beautiful things that you could ever lay eyes on um and ge- in general the way that this film going back to this being a graphic novel adaptation this film really visually uh fits this uh the framing and the kind of way um the graphic novels visually work uh the way the editing and the cinematography often looks like a series of panels just put into motion um i'm thinking of this scene uh, Jude Law actually shows up uh, playing a secondary villain character, a uh, man who's been hired to track down um, Tom Hanks's character and uh, and kill him. And it's it's just a fantastic scene where he plays this really skeevy villain who is a photographer that photographs the dead um, at crime scenes. And he shows up to one crime scene and gets the room to himself. And as he's setting up his shot, the murder victim in question comes back to life and um, or coughs realizing that he is still alive rather and Jude Law uh, 
suffocates him while he's alone in the room so that he can get his shot. And mm. as he does it, this train roars by in the background and it's series of three shots cut to wider and wider shots that look straight out of like a series of graphic novel panels. It's just, it's beautiful to see. And at the same time, this is uh, going into some of the writing and the characters. I do believe, you know, this was a great year for Tom Hanks. And I, he, I think he gave two of his best performances in two different films this year. We may end up talking about the other one here in a little bit, but uh, I think that this is one of his most interesting works because he usually, you think of Tom Hanks as this very warm and very upstanding presence. Um, he brings a sense of responsibility um, to his roles. And he brings that here, but it's also dialed back. He's very distant at first and very kind of plagued with guilt um, about it. It's, you know, kind of him playing bad. Um, and it, But it's not your typical, you know, whenever a well-loved performer decides to play a morally dubious or villainous character, uh, that it is does have this really impressive and subtly delivered moral dimension to it. Mm. Um, it's a, and it's also a wonderful tale of uh, relationships between father-son dynamics of found family and sense of moral obligation that can come from that, that complicates relationships um, and can ultimately lead to tragedy. And um, I love this film. It was a revelation to revisit this time. Um, it, it's, I believe it is on Netflix now uh, mm -hmm. if people want to check check it out it is it is actually uh dad was my dad was um thumbing through netflix and i saw it just yesterday so yeah i need i need to revisit this i probably should have before <laughs> before this episode uh, uh because i haven't seen it in a long time but i it's a it's an honorable mention it's probably in my 11 through 15 uh and everything about it you say that the, that you say about it is true it's just yeah i mean it's such an atypical role for um for Hanks to take on uh, kind of a villainous role like this certainly was better equipped for it than something later on, like the circle or whatever that oh, stupid okay. yeah. Emma Watson thing, but uh, just, yeah, it's fantastic. And yes, we'll probably be talking about the other movie that he was in uh, here in a little mm -hmm. bit. So, but my number, uh, my number seven is, uh, <laughs> is a work of real insanity. Uh, this one is adaptation from director Spike Jones, mm. uh, yes. and written by uh, Charlie Kaufman and Donald Kaufman. That's important to bring <laughs> up for a set for a little bit later on. Uh, this is the story of uh, Charlie Kaufman, <laughs> who is played by Nicolas Cage and his twin brother Donald, also played by Cage. Uh, very good dual performance here. Um, who is trying to adapt The Orchid Thief, a uh, very curious novel by Susan Orlean that I have read, actually, um, that he's trying to adapt this. He's been, he's been trying to adapt it, and it's just really hard. And he just can't, he just can't get it. He just can't get it, and he decides to... Um, uh, really really obsess about it <laughs> to the point of insanity just about because the end of this movie i won't give anything away but it's insane the end of this movie is insane um and it's also weirdly emotionally satisfying um maybe not mm -hmm. so much as some of the other kaufman screenplays i think that this one is mm -hmm. maybe a little more clinical 
um, a little bit more about the 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 puzzle of the movie, if you will, trying to figure it out. But man, I love Cage's performance, and it's important to state something too that yes, this film is is um, credited to screenwriters Charlie and Donald Kaufman, but Donald Kaufman does not exist. He is he is a fictional creation in this movie mm-hmm. and the screenplay was was credited him credited to him and they were both quote unquote nominated for an Oscar for this. So yes, at the Oscars there has been a person who doesn't exist nominated for an Oscar. And I just find that mm-hmm. genius. Of course it lost to talk to her. Um mm. uh you're yeah. you're number 7 I'm, but uh unfortunately but, but I mean, <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm not complaining about it. It's a it's a real work of brilliance. I love it and uh you know, just everything about it. Meryl Streep plays Susan Orlean. She's fantastic. Chris Cooper plays John LaRoche, who's just weird, no-toothed, uh, botan- like, uh, uh, not botanist. He's a, um, uh, an orchid, like, obsessive, essentially. Um, and he is really fantastic here, too. This is kind of the weird, you know, he was in this, and he was also the bad guy in The Born Identity. Very different performances. Right. Um There's- there is a remarkable amount of overlap between yes. great performances and a lot of <laughs> the films on my list. Yes, uh, that being Cooper being one. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I mean Tom Hanks, Philip Seymour Hoffman. We're gonna we're gonna get into a lot to a lot of them. Uh, maybe Leonardo DiCaprio later on. So, uh, um, <laughs> so yeah, it's 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 fantastic. Uh, if you like weird movies, if you, if you haven't seen this one, I don't know where it's streaming. Is it on Netflix? I don't think it is right now, but. Um, um, it was uh, it was available on the Criterion Channel as recently okay. as a month ago, but I'm not sure if it's still right on if it's there. if it's still on there. Um, I can't remember if that's one of the ones that they were removing. If they haven't removed that, definitely go look at that because um, yeah. it is weird and wild and wacky and really fantastic. So yeah, this is a this is very painful um, that for me that this has to be an honorable mention. Um, I've gone on the record saying I think uh, Spike Jones is my favorite. Uh, modern filmmaker mm. uh, Charlie Kaufman's probably my favorite screenwriter, and um, I think that they do really interesting work together. Uh, Jones has a as great as Charlie Kaufman's solo work films are. I think Jones has a has a way of kind of softening his cynicism and his self loathing mm. um, down a little bit and making uh, making it more resonant. But uh, yeah, this is it's it's a wild film just insanely creative the way that all of Kaufman's work is uh, and also how all of Jones's films are i think it's just uh it's a brilliant work but uh shame to say i think it's my least i think it's my least favorite from both of those uh, ah. both of those filmmakers but less because of the quality of the film but just you know something has to be last yeah i think but, um on that scale i certainly like well, in terms of Kaufman's screenplays, I think I like, um, yeah, I think I do like, what is it, uh, Synecdoche, Synecdoche, New York a little more. I like uh, Eternal Sunshine, certainly, that's my film of the century. Um, of you know, that one more. Uh, Being John Malkovich is way up on my list of the best films of 1999. I think that that's a fantastic movie. So yeah, and then in terms of Jones, I, I guess I probably like this about maybe about equally to some of his other stuff except for her which i think is a mm-hmm. little a little more emotionally resonant uh you know i know that you you uh you're a fan of that one oh, so I'm a huge fan yeah um 
So my might say the biggest fan. <laughs> right. Yes, exactly. That's 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 for another time. He he has a her shrine in his room. Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. Hey. That was I told you that in confidence. <laughs> All right. Well, my uh Oh wait, no, yeah, we're up to your number 6. Yeah. I just forgot yeah, where we were. It's my number 6. Yes, your number yeah. 6. So uh, just how does he do it? How does Spielberg consistently you know, knock out home runs, like two, not just one, but two home runs in the same year. Um, this is uh, the film in question that I'm talking about is Minority Report. Um, and this is, I think, in the canon of Spielberg's films. I think this is, you know, he's, you know, everyone's familiar with all of his great spectacles. And I think that this is genuinely one of his greatest um, spectacles. Um, this is the film adapted from uh, Philip K. Dick story uh takes place in the future where this uh special crimes unit and this technology has been invented that allows uh, for the police to predict when crimes are going to occur and prevent uh, murder before they happen um so tom cruise plays uh, kind of the lead um police officer who's working in this unit and uh fairly early on in the film uh his name comes up as generated from this uh, system. And so he has to go on the run to prove that he is not going to kill this person and, and try to um, avoid this crime. They knows that he couldn't possibly commit and can't commit. And it takes him on this odyssey of, you know, this exploration of uh, ultimately determinism um, and whether or not um, things are ordained, just very, these very heady sci-fi concepts. And the thing I'm in awe of, the thing that I respect the most, a lot of the times in films is when they are able to take very complicated and uh, highly intellectual concepts and boil them down to like the lowest possible level of explanation to where, you know, you want, you know, anybody could watch this and they perfectly understand how it works, what, um, what is going on, what the film is getting about. And I think this is another exemplary example of that. Um, screenplay is just, you know, you have this scene that just expertly sets up and explains what's going on in this world, both through action. We get this action scene where we do get to see um, them go to conduct one of these arrests. Meanwhile, um, we have Colin Farrell's character, who's kind of this shady agent who's been brought in to investigate and assess um, this experimental unit um, for whether or not it's successful or it, or it does what it does. And so as an outsider, we get uh, explanation to him that just perfectly explains the world building and how this technology works and what kind of world these characters are living in. And then once you get that out of the way, it's just straight ahead, nonstop um, action, and it just it d doesn't waste a moment. Um, it's Tom Cruise is you know it's not anything that he doesn't hasn't done before but he's brings the characteristic intensity and commitment to this role that he always brings um to his films and um this is also just a beautiful movie it's a i think it's an example of around this time i believe um starting around saving private ryan uh we started getting this this style of desaturated um highly desaturated uh cinematography that um Spielberg would routinely deploy in his film. I think War of the Worlds is another one of those kind of films that come to mind when I think of this uh, this kind of approach to the visual visuals of the film. But it's just it's very blinded, blinding white light 
overexposed look to it that there's so much gray and blue in this film that really kind of conveys both the paranoia and uh, and the kind of complex moral framework that this film hangs on. Um, but, you know, again, I could talk about the intellectual aspects of this film, but really the things that stand out the most are the set pieces. And, you know, Spielberg stages some of his best uh, set piece in this. We have the self, the car chase that's not really a car chase, but more crews having to hop between these different vehicles um, as they as they move along their tracks. We have uh, one of the arrests where these police officers come to arrest him bearing, you know, wearing jackbacks and uh, brandishing these stick, basically tasers, except they make you puke. Um, <laughs> and then, of course, I mean, where would we go if we didn't talk about the, the spider sequence? Mm, oh, my gosh. And you'll know what, I've, know what I'm talking about. And it's just, it ends on a fantastic note to just full intensity oh i how have i not mentioned max von Sydow as oh, yeah um, <laughs> as the mentor figure in this film who ends up having a lot more to do with the murder plot um than is initially uh led on to but just it all culminates and comes together it's just i i don't know it's i think it's a fantastic film i think it's one of spielberg's best yeah, we're going to get to this one on my list later on. Uh, <laughs> so, and we might get to another Spielberg movie maybe later on. So, yeah, it's, yeah, I'll, I'll just I'll just leave it at that. I agree with everything you're saying. I just don't want to spoil anything. But, uh, but yeah, so that's your number six. My number six is um, uh, quite different. And this one is one that I saw in theaters. I was very happy to see this in theaters. It stuck with me for a while. I've not seen it. In a while, I've, se- I've definitely seen it a couple times since theaters, but it's been it's been a while. Uh, so I really should have revisited this. It might have even been higher, but it's an animated film, and it's the Academy's choice for best animated film of 2002, and that is Spirited Away from director Hayao Miyazaki. Uh, this is about a young girl who is separated from her parents, who are literally turned into pigs. And she wanders into a magical land overruled by a very mean and very large-headed witch. Um, And it's just a work of tremendous imagination, as pretty much all Miyazaki movies are. Uh, Visual imagination. This is hand-drawn animation that he he literally just hand-draws. He does not do any computer work. He's very particular about that. Um, And he's done that, you know, throughout his filmography with... Movies like Kiki's Delivery Service, this film, uh, Porco Rosso, uh, later on with like The Wind Rises. Um, it, 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 he makes special movies. I haven't even listed them all. Princess Mononoke. But just is a very special filmmaker uh, currently in, I think, uh, um, retirement. But you never know because I think he retired before The Wind Rises too. So um, yeah, I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. I, I can't really say much more about it than that just because it has been a while. Um, but I just remember being dazzled by every strange and seemingly impossible like visual choice that this thing made. It, it plays with perspective. It plays with, um, you know, just the reality of this, even this world, just the, the simple like realness of it to this girl. And yeah, I love it. Um, is this one on your list? Uh, it is not on my list. I think it's one of the ones that slipped through the cracks because okay. I think it had a, like a 2001 release in oh, Japan okay. or something like that. And so okay. when I was kind of combing back through 
films of 2002 would just kind of slip to the cracks. But right. yes, I, I think it, it, it probably would be on my list. If I'm being honest, it is one that I need to revisit. Uh, mm-hmm. Generally, for me, Miyazaki, like even though I've appreciated most of his films, just kind of the strangeness of a lot of them takes a, has taken a little bit of getting used to for me personally. And it's something that usually resolves on a revisit. But uh, yeah, this is one I've only seen it once, uh, and I, I loved it when I saw it, but it is something that did have a little bit of a curve that I had to apply to it. So, right, right. Um, if I, gotcha. if I were to revisit it, it, you know, things might be different. Right. Totally understandable. It's uh, it's he's certainly one of those that's an acquired taste. Uh, I saw it with my dad, and he did not he did not get along with this movie in theaters. Mm-hmm. Um, right. You know, came out when I was like thirteen or something, so I had to see it with somebody, and because uh, I had to get there, <laughs> and so he saw it with me, and yeah, he was he's not an animated guy anyway, and this weird, strange trip through yeah. a, an acid well, trip. Just yeah, like yeah, I, I can, didn't get along with it. I can also imagine adults of a certain age just generally not being on mm-hmm. board with anime in general. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Calling, calling this an anime film is a little bit of a stretch because it's just kind of distinctly, it's Miyazaki, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of sets apart from most anime yeah. uh, styles. It's kind of its own thing, but I digress. Yeah. yeah. It's fantastic. Whatever it is, it's it's tremendous and it, and it has stayed with me this this whole time, but yeah. I do need to revisit this one. So those are our 10 through 6. We're going to take a quick break. You're going to hear an ad, and, uh, and we'll, be com- we'll be coming back. So just stick, just stick with us, folks, and we'll be right back. Hello, everybody. You just heard our picks from 10 through 6 of the best films of 2002, and it's now time to get to our top 5. We're, we're down to it, folks. We're almost there. We're in the home stretch. So... Chad, what is your number five film of 2002? All right, so my number five uh, has a very ironic title that is not lost at all on the film itself. It's uh, it's City of God. <laughs> uh, this is a film that's kind of a sprawling uh, slum life epic um, about uh, this group of young uh, children who all grow up in this uh, particularly violence-ridden slum uh, in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Um, and it kind of starts from uh, from all of them as children. As they grew up, uh, the story is told. Uh, it's an ensemble piece. The story is mainly told from the perspective of a, of a man named Rocket, who uh, aspires to be a photographer uh, when he grows up. And uh, photography really uh, comes into play uh, when you think about... Um, the visual presentation of this film. It's a very visually striking film. Film. Um, I feel like it's colored and edited and, um, and shot in a way that, to me, recalls late period Tony Scott if he were more grounded uh, in realism. Uh, just because the way the camera kind of swings around, it, it kind of feels like you know it's kind of just swinging back and forth trying to catch whatever is – document whatever is happening – uh, it just has this zany energy, and you kind of feel like you're following along, looking through the photographer's viewfinder, trying to look at it, um, get a look at everything that's going on. Um, so it follows follows one character named Rocket, um, who is trying to escape the slum, and he wants to be a photographer. And you have another whole cast of characters who are all kind of wrapped up in gangster, drug lord, kingpin life in some shape or fashion. Uh, most notably is... Uh, 
terrifying character uh, who, uh, when they're young, is played by Lil D- is named Lil Dice, played by this uh, young child actor named Douglas Silva, and honestly, straight up, he's a, one of the most terrifying villainous figures in any film that I have seen. Like just this kid from the get go, like he has no moral compass and he is bloodthirsty and he will kill anybody and everybody. Like one of the more terrifying images that I recall is this, uh, it's just a brief little snippet, but uh, you see it's kind of like a cut through time kind of going from his first kind of encounter with the violence to him growing up uh, where he takes on the name of Lil Zay instead. And in the middle of it, you get this, the camera's kind of low on the ground, kind of from the perspective of somebody who's been knocked on the ground. And you see the uh, Lil Dice pointing the gun, his handgun directly at the camera and just has this wide, toothy, gleeful grin as he pulls the trigger and is one of the most terrifying things ever um, that I've seen. Um, and it's just the film is filled with style it's full of um, visual inventiveness um, that is just energetic and it's zany and it is a thrill to watch even as you're watching some genuinely like horrifying um, horrifying imagery and just the tragedy of this whole ensemble of how this violence affects so many people and uh, draws people into this never ending um continuum mm-hmm. of, yeah. of tragedy and death uh, one other scene that comes straight to mind when I think of this film is a very tense scene where um, in the slum there is a smaller gang of very young kids like can't be maybe older than like anywhere between like seven, age 7 to 10 just to give you an idea of the, how early the, a lot of this stuff starts um, in this setting and they've been causing a lot of trouble and Lil Zay and his crew go and find them and they manage to catch a couple of the kids and they you have this prolonged sequence of them basically tormenting these kids where uh, they pit them against each, each other and eventually end up making one of them kill the other one um, it's just very visceral and very uh, gripping and it's just I think it's just an incredible piece of filmmaking of uh, of immediate filmmaking. Yeah, this is a really good one. And this is another 11 through 15 pick for me. Um, it's fantastic. It's just pure kinetic raw energy um, in a way that doesn't feel like it's trying to rip off any other directors. It just feels very mm-hmm. much like it's Morales's own uh, style. Uh, he's learned, he's obviously learned a lot from other directors, but he's not mm-hmm. just borrowing or, right. in, you know, imitating people. Um, right, and and we can't forget the influence of um, his co-director Katya Lund. Yes, uh, yeah, document, documentary filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Um, it very much has that. Very much has that energy. Yeah, for sure. And uh, yeah, sig- sort of certainly a significant co-director uh, um, credit for a for a woman uh, mm-hmm. in that period, and, and and for a movie like this uh, too. It just yeah. With this much prestige, it's it's amazing. So, all right. Uh, well, my number five is uh, a movie that is not super popular. Um, I love it, and it's because I actually love this movie, this director, when he goes a little trashier. I've s- still got a lot of his movies to see, but when he goes trashier, <clears throat> man, I, I love it. I think that this is a movie that Pauline Kale would go bonkers for. It was a, f- a film that Ebert really liked. Um 
And that is Femme Fatale. I I know where you're yeah. Going with this. <laughs> yeah, Femme Fatale from director Brian De Palma. Yes. Yeah, this movie is uh, just a an absolute delight uh from beginning to end. This one basically follows a career thief played by Rebecca Romaine Stamos. Uh not just Rebecca Romaine, but she was still married to John Stamos at the time. Um and she is a career thief who is uh about to basically retire. Uh she's trying to look for a, a way to get out and uh her latest job involves the stealing of a necklace from an actress or or somebody high up. I can't remember if they're an actress or not, but at the Cannes Film Festival. Um, and yeah, I mean, this is a movie that loves movies, clearly. It sets its main action at a, at a film festival. Um, De Palma loves movies. He's, he's obviously known for that. He uses a lot of other directors' kind of uh, signature movements of camera and, uh, and their their manipulation of light and all that to his advantage makes it his own. Uh, this is one of the best examples of that. It's a gorgeous film to look at. I don't think that this has a Blu-ray release. It might, uh, I think it doesn't cause I'm pretty sure that Warner archive did the DVD and they've been pretty tight lipped on, uh, on up upgrading their movies, which is kind of a bummer because this movie would look amazing. And, um, yeah, it's got Antonio Banderas. Uh, it's got even Sandrine Bonnier, who is uh, a great French actress, kind of a legend. Uh, worked a lot with Patrice Leconte, who clearly has his own influence on this movie in terms of the tension between the characters. It's a very sexy movie. I mean, just look at the poster for it. The cover art for the DVD is is uh, Romain Stamos in a, in a um, very scantily clad outfit. That might give you the wrong idea about the movie. I think that they kind of tried to sell this in a certain way. It's a little more artful than it might seem. It's very much in the tradition of something like if David Lynch took over uh, just a typical um, procedural uh, because it really does play with time and our perception of it. And it's, uh, yeah, it's a tremendous piece of work. I, it's so much fun. It's a really, really just twisty, awesome thriller and it's kind of my hidden gem. I always try to have at least one hidden gem on my list. This is the closest thing to that. It was a wide release, but it seems to have fallen out of favor a little bit um, as the years have gone by. Uh, this is not one that's really received from De Palma's filmography a critical rethink, um, uh, much like something like Snake Eyes has, which I really like too. But uh, that one kind of received more of a uh, here's what we here's what we think now. It's way better than than you might think. And this one hasn't received that, and it's kind of a bummer. I think it's just because it doesn't have that extra release. Um, so I'm hopeful that that comes down the line. But uh, but yeah, for now, I own the DVD. I'm happy to own the DVD. Um, and I've seen this a couple times. It's been a while since the last viewing. Another another situation where a rewatch might have put it somewhere on the list, uh, somewhere else on the list. But for now, yeah, it's it's my it's my number five. I I'm a big fan of this. And this is uh this is an honorable mention for you, yeah. Uh, yes, it's uh, this. This will be an eleven through fifteen pick, yeah. and I I felt comfortable leaving it there because I knew it would come up on your list. Right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's it's real unfortunate that the twenty first century has not been kind to De Palma, both mm. you know for the general. Uh, I I don't think I've seen anything that he's made since this film, but they his the films he's made since, including this one, just generally aren't very well considered. Right. But this is one that definitely deserves a reconsideration. Um, yeah. 
one that I've been told by people I trust who really liked it is that that I would like is Passion uh, from 2013, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, Numi Rapace, uh, I think Amanda Seyfried or Rachel McAdams. There we go. Somebody from yeah. somebody somebody from Mean Girls. Um, yeah. And uh, <laughs> and I've yeah. also been told that I would really like the Black Dahlia, but I haven't seen that one either. Um, yeah, it, I'm I'm very behind on a lot of his stuff, but I do love Blowout. Um, I love Snake Snake Eyes. Like I said, Snake Eyes, very twisty movie with Nicolas Cage. Uh, fantastic. So yeah, uh, this is a director that I'm that I'm still getting into, but I but I do love his work. So. Right. That is and this one. Five. This one in particular reminds me of a certain other filmmaker's work. That if I say which one it is, will probably spoil a good bit of this. So I would oh right, say right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I I totally know what you mean. Um, all right, all right. Well, you're number four. Yeah. So uh, here comes a uh, here comes the other Spielberg pick. Uh, it's Catch Me If You Can. Uh, Maybe it says more about me that I had kind of considered this a forgotten or a lower tier Spielberg film. I think it's you know it's probably one that until recently I hadn't seen it since maybe I was a kid um, when it came out and just didn't have a great memory of it. But God, I was I was shocked to revisit this of just how great a little piece of entertainment this was, but also how sad it is i genuinely think this is one of spielberg's more more tragic films that and it's kind of sneaks its way in there among all the 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 thrill of the chase and the con that comes with this story uh, that story is uh the story of the true story of the life of frank abagnale jr who is a notorious con artist who led the fbi um on a wild goose chase trying to catch him for years uh through a series of uh check fraud and impersonating uh, anything from a Pan Am pilot to a, a doctor to even pretending to be a, a, a lawyer for a time. Um, all the, And all of this before his 19th birthday. Um, in the role of Frank, we have a, a young Leonardo DiCaprio who, you know, projects that wonderful movie star uh, confidence that he has, but also just for his youth, he never lets you forget how young this kid is. Um, like that's something that I'd forgotten about personally about this story and just is continually shocking how far he is able to get and how advanced his understanding of how, uh, how the, all of these systems that he's able to infiltrate and exploit work, um, as somebody so young, but it's also just the air of tragedy that comes, comes with it, with, uh, what's driving it. Um, the film starts out, um, with him living with his parents and they're going through a divorce. Uh, his father played by Christopher Walken. And uh, he actually learns a good bit of what he does from, from his father. And as the film goes by, it, it just, you see that everything that he does, all these crazy and wonderful and amazing things he does is all rooted in this desire of a child to fix his, to fix his life and mm. fix his parents' life. Um, and give them the things that they couldn't get and it's just it's so it is so wonderfully sad and and heartbreaking i think on one hand i could count two scenes in this film uh, a dinner scene or rather a lunch scene between dicaprio and, and christopher walken and then also a later scene between uh dicaprio and tom hanks uh, who is the who plays the fbi agent who is uh, chasing uh frank uh, through the film that are among the the more heartbreaking film uh, scenes that Spielberg has put into any of his films. Um, it's full of period detail. It's all set in the fifties and the sixties. And it has that wonderful, you know, nostalgic picture of, um, 
of American life during that time that you're used to. But, uh, you know, James Kaminsky's cinematography, kind of similar to what we see in Minority Report and a lot of the stuff Spielberg is doing in that time, uh, he kind of undercuts the tone of that um, that time period with this revealing, blinding, kind of washed out light in places that really kind of uh, lends the the frame, this uh, undercurrent of, of that tragedy and sadness um, that I've been talking about that this film has. Um, it's, uh, needless to say, it's not, is nowhere close to lower ranked Spielberg. I think this is one of his best films, uh, definitely of the 21st century. Um, and I just think it's absolutely wonderful and completely, utterly watchable. Um, it's doesn't deserve, doesn't deserve to be forgotten. Well, sometimes things work out perfectly because this is my number four as well. Uh, oh, hey. Yeah, so I was wondering as we were getting closer because I have a feeling I know the exact order that your top three is in. But um, and so I was wondering if this was going to be in that three or whether it was going to be your number four. So yeah, man, this movie, I just watched it again about a week ago. Um, you know, in, in quarantine, we're trying to watch a lot of movies and we paired this sort of in a weekend viewing kind of thing. It wasn't the same day, but we paired this with Matchstick Men. Um, we wanted to watch Match, yeah, Matchstick Men one day, and then this movie, also a con story, just from a very different perspective, um, another day, and yeah, it's so good. I, this movie is also kind of deceptive, I think, in how good it is. I think that people, you know, saw it, didn't see something as visually complex as something like Minority Report, didn't see that he was making this big extremely serious prestige film like Schindler's List or Saving Private Ryan and then just kind of shrugged it off as, you know, this is him having fun. But I think that it's easy, uh, you know, I've talked about this before, uh, it's easy to underrate comedy on top tens. This is a very funny movie, often. Extremely. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a comedy. It's an outright comedy. <laughs> and it's also an extremely touching father-son story in two different ways i mean you have these absolutely devastating scenes of uh dicaprio and walken uh reuniting with each other over the years and Mm -hmm. with the walken character just becoming more and more disillusioned from his son as Mm -hmm. somebody that he wants even to succeed or anything and then you also have this chase where suddenly tom hanks's agent you know maybe becomes somebody that kind of cares about Frank, um, in only the way that, that an agent can, who's trying to chase him, mm-hmm. but somebody who is ultimately worried about his, you know, his, uh, mm-hmm. well-being and his, and his future. And I, I just, I love Hanks in this movie. Um, mm-hmm. and yeah, it's, it's, tr- it's great. John Williams, score yeah. is beautiful. This is, this is a big year for him. Uh, cause oh, yeah. he, he did this. He also did minority report. For Spielberg, he also did Harry Potter too. He also did Star Wars too. I mean, this, and he was nominated just for this one um, at the Oscars. And it's yeah, it's a great score and yeah, um, yeah. and a great film. It's fantastic. So, and yeah. going back to the father son dynamic and how you explain it, one detail that I'd forgotten, I think, what maybe a more traditional uh, story might go with, it was I was expecting for Christopher Walken as a father figure to somehow disapprove of what his son was doing but he's actually like again he learns a lot of this stuff from him and actively encourages it and you know likely against uh the best wishes of um or the the best uh what what uh that character and this young man needs 
you know, from mm-hmm. a father figure, uh, somebody that actually does care about him and will look after his best interest. Yeah. Um, and again, Tom Hanks, this is a great performance from him. This is a kind of, you know, a counterpoint to his performance in Road to Perdition, where this is very much a lot of, very similar to a lot of the stuff that Hanks typically does, but he just does it so well. Yeah. Um, just, he twist, uh, he does twist it just a little here. He is playing an antagonistic yeah. role, technically. Um, right. In but, terms but of he his... Has this, he has the upstandingness. He has mm-hmm. the very strong moral compass and that authority and that sense of responsibility. Yeah, um, exactly. He's not mean. He's not mean spirited at all. He's not. Right. You know, it's not like he's some like self obsessed detective who you know he's pretty obsessed with his cases and maybe it's ruined a little bit of his personal life. You know, we get a we get a feeling for that uh, through various conversations that he has. But he's not. He's he's doing it because he's it's his duty. It's because it's what he's good at you know probably and it's just yeah he's a he's a good man he just happens to be on the opposite side of the <laughs> of the uh right. uh as our as our protagonist so yeah it's uh it's a great movie it's a great movie so yeah both of our number four all right well that brings us then uh, around to your number three and i'm pretty sure i know what it is it's one that i've uh that i passed on right <laughs> yeah uh two of Two of my top three have, have already come up on the show yeah. before, um, on this episode bef- already. And my number three is 25th Hour, like what you said earlier. And um, this is a film, again, I think it's one of Spike Lee's best films. Uh, I won't go too much into detail the way you did explaining you know, the plot and everything like that. But I do see, I think it's fascinating as a Spike Lee film and just as a 9-11 film most primarily just because – to me, you know, not being a native New Yorker and you know, not having a great memory of 9-11, it, I wasn't the ideal person. Like, it was very difficult on a first viewing for me to process this as a film about 9-11. Um, but over time, it ended up being just this very profound exploration of it for me, where when they were producing it, uh, it's uh, written by David Benioff and uh, adapted from his novel, um, from what I understand, the novel was written before 9-11 and wasn't about 9-11. This film wasn't going to be either, but obviously while they were filming, this happened. Mm-hmm. And I think you know that that event just hangs over this film, even though the, the specifics of the plot have nothing to do uh, with the film and no one really directly brings it up or talks about it. But just the specter of this tragedy hangs over the whole film. Um, it's present when uh, Barry Pepper and uh, Philip mm-hmm. Seymour Hoffman are, uh, are talking in Barry Pe- Pepper's apartment, which overlooks ground zero. Yeah. Um, and, and, and by it, the way, that moment, by the way, whenever I, whenever I first watched it, I just, sorry for pausing you there, but when, when I was first watching it, I mean, it immediately makes you think, Oh my gosh. This is literally right by this. What was that day like for him? Mm-hmm. It it immediately right. puts you in that mindset of, whoa, holy crap. I mean, this is right by ground zero. If he was living there at the time, you know, like, whoa. Anyway, yeah, it's like you said, right. it's it's not about it. It's just, it's using that as a, as a motif almost. Um, right. Yeah, it's, and I love I that. I think it ties, it ties into what the main character is struggling with, that mm-hmm. he's, you know, he's going, this is his last period going uh, off to jail and it's you know it's processing this loss of normalcy this grappling with uh, the life that you once had just being radically different from now on and forever and just being gone of this time that you can't go back to because now everything is so different it's just this forced 
and forcing this reflection on his relationships with with everyone in his circle and i think it's it's that kind of reflection that i think apply can apply to new york it's spike lee processing a lot of this stuff mm-hmm. about the city they love so much and i think it's clear throughout his filmography spike lee loves new york but it's never been more clear here and likewise spike lee i think um he uh, he has a he has a reputation for his anger and being very passionate. A lot of his films can feel, you know, either like a polemic or a call to action or you know something sermonizing, something righteous and angry. And that anger is present here, but it's very uniquely deployed. Like this isn't any of what I just mentioned. This is a eulogy, and where normally it would be righteous, it feels futile and mournful. Like it's a it's a way to process that grief. Like I'm particularly thinking of. You know, it's an infamous sequence, the FU sequence, uh, mm-hmm. where he, Edward Norton, uh, to himself in the mirror, goes on this huge tirade, of, you know, calling out any manner of all these different communities that all live in New York City before turning it back on himself. Um, yep. And it's just, it is, it's an earth-shaking movie. I, I love it. I, I think it's just an incredible piece of work and has so much more meaning to it than than you would think yeah yeah oh yeah i mean hey it's it's been on my list i I completely agree with you um yeah the performances here are so good norton should have been nominated people things about this movie should have been nominated uh yeah this is this is a murderer's row of great performances yes you you got edward norton you got philip seymour hoffman uh barry pepper was really great Mm -hmm. uh, around this time rosario dawson like you mentioned brian cox and then um anna paquin oh yeah i forgot to mention her yeah she's great yeah uh that she's great it's just everybody doing fantastic work yeah for sure all right, well, my number three is actually a movie that was kind of haunted by the specter of 9-11, too, uh, because it happened, I think, after technically the production was over, and then they delayed the movie for a while because it was supposed to come out right after, and everybody involved felt a little awkward about releasing it, uh, and that is Gangs of New York from director Martin Scorsese. Um, I'm, I, you know, We'll get to you in a minute. I know that you're a little lukewarm on this one. Um, and that's, and that's not surprising. There were a lot of people who were, um, lukewarm about this. And basically it's the, the story, uh, a movie that also stars Leonardo DiCaprio, by the way, this is a repeat for him right in a row for me. It's a double feature, uh, movies that were released, I think like five days from each other, in fact, in the doldrums of December. But, uh, Amsterdam Valen is the main character played by DiCaprio who, whose father, uh, played in a brief prologue by um, Liam Neeson is killed by a a kind of a crime boss. Very yeah, he's he's a gangster uh, named Butcher Bill the Butcher Cutting. Bill Cutting is his name. He goes by Bill Bill the Butcher. He's played by an absolutely insanely terrifying Daniel Day Lewis in probably the best performance of all of two thousand two. Um. It's probably just pretty normal that Daniel Day Lewis gives the best performance <laughs> of whatever year, except for the movie Nine. Probably every other every other year, um, he's he's terrifying here as this guy with a glass eye, and the glass eye is actually like an eagle uh, <laughs> with the flag in it or something. <laughs> that just tells you what kind of person he is. He's like an ultra, he's an ultra nationalist patriot kind of person who is 
absolutely opposed to any sort of opposition to him. He rules these streets and anybody who comes into his, uh, his line of sight is not getting out alive and he does not use guns. I'll just say that he is a guy who likes knives and axes. He's a violent butcher. He's literally a butcher. He works as a butcher. Um, but otherwise he works as, uh, basically an enforcer of his own laws. I mean, that's the character that's most worthy, worthy of talking about in this movie of the characters. But you also have Amsterdam, who's just this, he's basically, it's a revenge plot. And it ultimately turns also into kind of sort of a romance with Cameron Diaz's character. Um, she's the one that doesn't seem to fit in the cast. I think that she's really good. I'll just say, uh, you know, right here, I, think, I don't think she's uh, living up to the other people in the cast. Um, but she's fantastic here too on her, uh, you know, in, in her own right. Um, and everything about this is, I think it's Scorsese's, maybe his nastiest film in a, in a major way. And that's saying a lot considering he's the director of Taxi Driver. Um, mm-hmm. but I think that this is his most unhinged maybe movie and to some, yeah, that's, that seems like a good one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is very unhinged. And, and to some, to his discredit, uh, you know, I know that you're you're a little less kind to this, and there are people who just are like, you know, there's a lot of flaws. The movie had a really troubled production, and a lot of it was left on the cutting room floor after 9-11. So there's almost kind of in, an incomplete story here, but I think it's version of New York at this period of time, which is the early 1900s or late 1800s, is one of the most compelling visions of New York that Scorsese has given us. And that's saying a lot because this is another director who loves New York. Um, in fact, may, may love New York more than Spike Lee, which is, I don't know if there's a competition there, but uh, uh, yeah, there, there's not, there's, there's not, they're, both... they're, they're, they both yeah. love it in different ways too. There's a different, there's different New Yorks uh, that they're, right, that each yeah. of them are talking about. So yeah, I, I, um, I love it. I know that other people don't. I know that they're also big time defenders of this one. Um, they're people who counted among his best films, and I do. I counted among Scorsese's best films um, in its in all of its ungainly glory. I think that every everything about this screenplay that is trying so hard to be such a big sprawling study of just you know violence and the cycle of violence. This is another cycle of violence movie. Um, is fascinating in every single way. And, um, yeah, just the performances, the production design is meticulous, um, and perfectly executed. I just, yeah, I love this movie so, so, so much. And, um, yeah, so that's why it's my number three. I know that you're, you're not huge on this one. I'm going to let you, uh, yeah, it's a very, it's a very dispassionate. Mm. Like, Oh, okay. Uh, to be frank, it's been a while since I've seen it. I remember the time just being like, oh, it, was, it was fine. It was, it was one of the stranger, you know, you, you kind of said one of the most compelling mm-hmm. visions in New York. I thought it was very strange. You know, there's definitely right. nothing like it. And, uh, you know, I was willing to reconsider it for this list, but I, I attempted to uh, revisit it uh, in preparation. But uh, lacking a physical copy and not being able to track one down in nowhere, Arkansas, in the middle of a quarantine, <laughs> I resort to digital media. And every place that you can rent this from digitally has it in the has it cropped, like in the wrong oh. aspect ratio. I think it's presented in like a two 
2.65 like widescreen mm. uh, originally, but it's cropped to full screen pretty much anywhere you can get it. And so I felt like this was a film that deserved like the to not have that treatment mm-hmm. uh, that that watching it that way was going to be a, a discredit to the film uh, yeah. and the filmmaking. So I chose not to totally understand that I, this you're absolutely right about it too it is one of those that just requires that um so i don't i don't blame you for for bailing uh, on that um especially since right. you know to begin with you weren't super crazy about it so um right but yeah also just getting on my soapbox um <laughs> digital outlets stop cropping your movie <laughs> yes i i i co-signed don't. this i co-signed this petition uh <laughs> It's yes. yes, it is. Uh, it's a dirge. It's, it's a dirge, terrible. or it's a scourge. Whatever. It's both things. Um, yeah, it's it's. I'm I'm in love with this one. I know that a lot of people aren't. It's totally fine. Uh, it's it's a weird one. It's a weird one. All right, we're up to your number two, and I'm pretty sure I know what it is. I'm pretty sure I yeah, know what it is. Is the other one that I do? Which will, <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is uh my number two is uh number two in its respective series, The Lord mm-hmm. of the Rings, Two Towers. Uh, yet, if you ask me on any given day which film of this trilogy is my favorite, it would, you know, kind of depending on how I'm feeling, I would probably flip-flop between this one and Fellowship of the Ring. But mm. for now, I'll, for today, I will say that this is probably my favorite of the series, just because I, I don't know, I feel like part of the reason I love both of those films in this series is that they are, as far as their function in the trilogy, um, as a whole, they are both exemplary examples of the function that uh, a fir- both a first film serves as an introduction to the world and the second film functions as a continuation and a bridge uh, while um, also having its own stakes to it. Um, this is one that, again, like I mentioned earlier, it's almost it, self-evident. It doesn't really need to be talked about. Just this is one of the more, like one of the most impressive um uh, fantasy spectacles that have been put it's you know peter jackson and his team put so much detail into every aspect of the costuming of the visual effects of the models of the detail on the props and the locations and the sets everything is so thought through and so fussed over um and it never feels it, it never feels anything less than authentic and um and it is just full of just incredible mind-blowing stuff like this is stuff that has etched itself on the uh, mindscape of popular culture for our generation this is functionally i guess our star wars mm, um, yeah and it's just uh it's complete it's, it's, complete with the disappointing prequels uh <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> in, in, in very different ways time is a flat circle <laughs> everything everything repeats itself yeah Um, yeah it is uh but yeah it's just uh, it's all these characters we love so much um frodo and and all on their own very compelling storylines in here you know this is the one where the fellowship is separated and each one is on their own mission where things kind of start to put off and this is just the potential like the tight where the tightrope what the tightrope walk this movie goes like it could become so messy and disorganized from all these stories because yes. you got Frodo and Sam meeting Gollum and going on and making their way to Mordor. You have Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli chasing after the Uruk guy who've taken uh, Merry and Pippin, and then you have Merry and Pippin who have their own journey, 
got Gandalf, uh, Gandalf story and how those all kind of intersect. And there are so many points where this could just go off the rails and just be, become a complete mess. And it never does it. Um, again, this is one of the, probably one of the few cases, you know, the general, um, accepted way to watch these movies now is through the extended editions rather than theatrical. And these are really the films with maybe the exception of, uh, Return of the King that truly the extended edition or rather the director's cut that has things added back in are the definitive way mm-hmm. to watch it. Like, because, you know, even with the stuff being cut more for time, you know, you, you get the feeling that the stuff that was left out of the theatrical wasn't necessarily cut because it wasn't needed or wasn't helpful to the story, but more to for time mm-hmm. than anything else. And is just, mm, um, I don't think I need to say anything else about right. this. It's a great <laughs> film. It's full of spectacle and just jaw-dropping in its scale and its magnitude and its emotional resonance. So making me feel bad for having it having it so low. Um, and you're and you're so right too about how it could have fallen apart here, because mm-hmm. we, you know we could have had and it probably would have stayed this way, but we could have had the Fellowship of the Ring. And I guess I'll just reveal it. The Fellowship of the Ring is my favorite, but uh, of the three theatrical versions, but. We could have had this great, grand, sweeping epic with the Fellowship of the Ring, introducing us to all these characters, doing it so well and so precisely, even though it's three hours, it never wastes a minute. And then you could have had a second part, which could just completely ruin the the, the two hours novel, part of the novel, um, mm-hmm. and with, with just Bombast. It just could have really leaned into that, but no, it didn't lose a step with the characters and all of that, and the characters are at the center of this, and I think that that is so important you have this middle act that's you know establish you know reestablishing stakes and all of that but you also have it attentive to the characters and i and i think that that is just so important and then it was just doubly impressive when when it ended with the return of the king and it was so big and grand that it did it so well and still also was central on the characters and i just yeah it's a great franchise uh this is a great installment in it and uh yeah, it's uh, it's great. So, love it, yeah. love it. It's both it's Absolutely. on both of our lists. All right, so that's your number two. Well, my number two, I I, I have figured out Chase's I mean, Chase <laughs> Chaz number one. Um, I have figured it out, and in fact, it is uh, my. And you're, and you're gonna go ahead and spoil it. It I am because it's my number two. Uh, uh-huh. yeah. So my number two is Punch Drunk Love from director Paul Thomas Anderson, and I will say, so I had a list. On my notes, on my phone, I always do notes on my phone. I, I, I have to. It's like my OCD thing. If I, I have all of my lists up until now on my phone for, for every year, and I make one, and earlier this week I was thinking about it, and I made one, and I was like, oh, man, that's great. But in the back of my mind, I was I had I had Punch Drunk Love at, like, number number eight, and I was like, you know what? I really need to rewatch that. Because I really need to, I really need to make time. And of course, at the time, I was, I was kind of focused on 2003. And so, because I, I did that one yesterday, and that was kind of my focus. So, I decided instead of catching up with the ring or talk to her, um, that I would rewatch this. I was like, I just, I need this. I need to rewatch it because I have a feeling that it's going to change some things. And I rewatched it, and that was very needed. Um, so this is the story of Barry Egan, who is a, an incredibly depressed uh, salesman of some sort. Honestly, I don't even pay attention to what he does. But 
uh, in this movie. I don't even think it matters. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's he's he sells novelty toilets. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of nonsense. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, so he is very depressed. He's very down on his luck too. This is not. I mean, he's he's kind of a loser, and I don't want to do that in a say that in a way that is making fun of him because that's like antithetical to the movie's point, but. He's very depressed. This is a guy who is suffering from severe clinical depression. Um, he cannot find happiness anywhere. He cannot talk to anybody about it because all of his like twelve sisters that he has are all too busy to uh, you know with their own stuff um, to really have any time for him. They're mostly irritated when he doesn't show up for parties, and he swears he's going to show up for tonight's. But you know he's got a lot on his plate, and so. Uh, one of his sisters played by, interestingly enough, uh, when I first saw this movie, I was only familiar with this, with this actress from 24 and that was a very different context, but Marilyn Reiskub, uh, who played Chloe O'Brien on 24 plays the sister that we see the most here. Um, she's like, Hey, do you want to come to this party? I'm inviting a girl. She's pretty cute. I want you to meet her. Uh, and he's just, he's not, he's not up for that. It's change. He doesn't like change. It's a social situation. He really doesn't like social situations, mm-hmm. to say the least. Anyway, and then he decides, you know, for companionship, I need somebody to talk to. I'm going to call this sex line. And that starts him on a downward spiral, if you've ever seen one. I mean, it's it's Uncut Gems before Uncut Gems happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really is. <laughs> he even ends up with a punched nose. It's, it's just perfectly, you know, Uncut Gems prequel kind of. Um he calls the sex line, which ends up being an extortion scheme on the other end, headed by a cameoing uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, who shows up at the end of the movie. Um, and they they basically take him for what he's worth, uh, which is very little. They take $500, which is a lot of money for him. He, he barely makes anything with his own business, which really isn't diversifying, although he wants it to. I mean, this gives you an idea of what this movie is about. Yet, out of all of that, this is not a quirky comedy, and th- also this is not a straight drama. It's often very dryly funny, but it's also very sad. And that's because director Paul Thomas Anderson uh, pumps it full of energy. There's a John Bryan score here that you never know what it's going to do to your ears at any given second. It's got so many different kind of musical layers and musical ideas in it that that range from pianos to a use of a song from the 1980 Popeye movie to, uh, which is, uh, <laughs> he needs me, he needs me. That segment, mm. uh, it was sung by Shelley Duvall and Robin Williams in that film. Um, uh, to like weird. I, I don't know if they're just like cups being banged or what. It's like a Fiona Apple album, which is ironic because the score mm-hmm. is done by John Bryan, who is Fiona Apple's producer. Um, and a producer of many other people, including like right. Kanye West and, and stuff. And Paul Thomas Anderson was uh, was partnered uh, with uh, yes. Fiona Apple at the time. Yes, he, yes, he yeah. did the. Uh, he's done a few, I think, two or three of her videos, uh, including Hot Knife, um, which yeah. is a which is a great video. Yeah, uh, yeah, and of course Radiohead and um, has done a lot of music videos uh, before and during his um, his career. This is one of the best of his films. Um, and that's saying a lot cause he's, he's one of the great American masters, I think. And, uh, you know, I always say like there, even though I, I don't mean this in a, he's imitating people kind of way. I always say that basically 
Paul Thomas Anderson, whenever he makes a movie, is is making a homage to someone else. So like, yeah. I haven't I haven't seen Hard Eight, so I don't know what that is. But um, that's the only one I've not seen. But you know, Boogie Nights is his Scorsese movie. Um, it's very much in the in the style of Scorsese. It's also very much him, and I and I don't mean to to say that he's just imitating. Mm-hmm. Again, I I think they're all very PTA. But he's also homaging other filmmakers. So like, uh, Boogie Nights is his. Uh, um, his Scorsese movie. Magnolia is his Altman movie. I, obviously. Big cast, sprawling story, kind of magical realist. It's very much Altman. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have, like, uh, There Will Be Blood is kind of his Orson Welles uh, movie. Mm-hmm. I would I would argue that maybe The Master is kind of um, cub- almost Kubrickian in a way. Uh, there's also... I, I would agree on that front. Yeah. Um, Kubrickian. Good match for that one. Yeah, Inherent Vice might also be Altman, just a different mode of Altman, uh, mm-hmm. with his like the long goodbye and all of that. Uh, his comedies, you know. What were you saying? Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. Oh, I, I, <laughs> and then uh, Phantom Thread is his Hitchcock movie, um, in terms of like a Rebecca kind of Hitchcock. So, um, yeah, I I I think that this might be, and it's a weird comparison, just because it, it would seem unusual, but. I think that this is sort of his Nora Ephron, uh, <laughs> you know, homage, which yeah. is which is or maybe Nancy Myers, uh, probably Nora Ephron because it's short. Nancy Myers movies are long, but in that in that respect, I mean, it's a romantic comedy, but it's also about a sad sack, and it's also you know when it introduces the the love interest played by Emily Watson, she's a lot more complex than a Nora Ephron uh, romantic interest would be, whether they're male or female. And I, I think that it's just it's using those and then turning it up to eleven, um, and and especially with the style is certainly nothing like Efron, but um, it's just so well edited and well paced. I mean, this is the kind of movie. It's like eighty eight minutes or something. I don't want it to end. I can't believe it ends so soon. Um, and it has a nice R rated sensibility to it. A lot of language in this, and I love that because it's very R rated. Um, mm-hmm. R-rated Adam Sandler tends to be more fun to watch than <laughs> than PG thirteen. So, yeah, um, and yeah, I love this movie so much, so much, so much. It is a joy to watch. I don't know why I don't make this like a thing every two months or something, um, because even when it gets sad, it's it's exhilarating to watch it, and I love it. So yeah, I mean, this is yeah. this is your number one, right? So <laughs> yes, it, it is absolutely my uh, number one, and. Like you, this was something that I uh, I revisited for the first time very recently in preparation for this, and it was a completely revelatory, like, oh my god, why, what, how did I undervalue this before? Mm-hmm. Like, because I think for me, as much as as high as Paul Thomas Anderson's reputation is, you know, as a filmmaker, and this is, I agree with you, th- I believe this is one of his best films. It might be. I don't know. I'm not sure if it's going to edge out. There will be blood for my favorite of his, but it's it's is comes pretty close. Um, I just I think it's impossible to approach this film outside of the context of how you feel about Adam Sandler. Um, and Sandler, what he's a performer who you know he's his comedies are kind of notorious how you might feel about him and stuff like that. Um, I didn't grow up on Sandler's comedies, and by the around the time that I really got into film um, and became kind of aware of critical consideration and things like that like i saw that just generally his films were not well considered and so he always had that reputation and i had a very 
unfortunate first exposure uh, in the form of a theatrical viewing of Jack and Jill. Oh, and boy. Yeah, that was my first exposure to Adam Sandler, and I kind of said, uh, no, thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but so that was the context with which I saw this for the first time, and I was kind of more approachable, like, oh, he can actually act and do things. But I just on this revisit, I realized just how fair this, how unfair that assessment is. Right. Um, and I think that's a revelation that I could only come to in the context of Uncut Gems, mm. um, because this is another case like Uncut Gems, where a filmmaker who loves this actor and loves this actor wrote something for that actor to perform that perfectly utilizes his skill as a performer uh, and his skills as a performer and a com- and a comedian. And I guess at the time, like, I didn't think, you know, this is a very r- rude thing to say, but I generally considered, you know, like, what skills? But, oh, right. <laughs> yeah, right. right. But, uh, but Uncut Gems, you know, is a similar situation. That film ratchets up the stress so mm-hmm. much to, to bring this nervous energy out of Sandler and this, you know, barely contained rage. It's it's not so barely contained in uh, Uncut Gems. It kind of comes willing willingly and freely, but is this kind of very gregarious and nervous energy that he has all the time. And he definitely has that here, but it's also tinged with that, you know, you think of a lot of the really iconic Adam Sandler films from the movies that people like from him. You know, you think of your Billy Madison and your Happy Gilmore. You think of the scenes where he loses it, Mm -hmm. where he lets that rage fly. And that is, like, the key source of tension in this whole film, is that you have, you know, you called him depressed. I'm not necessarily... I don't know. I think his problems are a little more complicated than just maybe. It may be bipolar disorder. I feel like it's yes. some. I feel like it's something though. It may have been wrong to call it depression. Uh, he gets yeah. into depressive states though. Certainly, mm-hmm. uh, whether that's actual oh, like the depression falls under that because uh, it's a spectrum and all and all of that. But yeah, it's um, yeah whatever it is, it's it's obviously troubling him. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well. Well. Basically, I think my main takeaway from him was just that this is a guy who has who struggles with being able to express himself. Like he has this, all of these sisters who, whenever they're paying attention to him, they're nagging him and constantly making fun of every aspect of what he does, his choice of words, what he's wearing, uh, why he doesn't want to come to, you know, the, the cookout or the dinner, uh, and whether or not he needs to have a girlfriend, you know, Mm -hmm. I think, (laughs) I think of the first line, he walks in the door, of that dinner party, and one of us is one of the first things said to him is just like, "Hey, remember when we used to call you gay boy?" <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. And, yeah. <laughs> and they, and that that's repeated until he acknowledges it. It's yeah. just is a person who feels like he cannot express himself, yeah. and when that rage does come out, um, he is not going to be understood, and he is not. Uh, it's going to make his alienation even worse. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's been and, and that. Yeah, Go ahead. Sorry. That barely contained and suppressed rage that you feel is a constant source of tension throughout the film, and it's just wonderful how Sandler uh, plays that and, and is able to capture that. And then you have uh, Emily Watson's character, this woman who uh, is taking an interest in him uh, and is allowing him to actually feel and express uh, what he is feeling and to channel that rage into something that is productive and uh, positive. Mm-hmm. in a way that he has something to protect and something to live for is just, it's, it's a miraculous little, little piece of performance and writing specifically to him. Yeah. And it's really interesting to see this paired with uncut gems 
as kind of so what I have to wonder is by the point that he made Punch Drunk Love he wasn't to the point of making stuff like uh like um uh, I I know you I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry which I think is his worst movie um or stuff like Jack and Jill like you said um where a friend friend of the podcast constant guest Mark Dusick um says has made this very fine point which is that Sandler plays characters that are that are cursed with impotent rage. Like they're 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 impotent rageful characters. And so what it what's interesting is that Anderson must have at that point watched, you know, stuff like Billy Madison and then also watched stuff like The Wedding Singer, in which he is a lot softer, and realized, mm-hmm. okay, so there's two modes to Adam Sandler. There's the mode where he's a little softer, he's playing the romantic lead, and then there's the mode where he's playing the comic lead, where he he adopts the voice, and he and he's loud and and you know obnoxious constantly, and whether it's good or not, he's he's definitely obnoxious. Um, and then he was mm-hmm. like, okay, well, I'm gonna take the romantic lead version of Adam Sandler and kind of dial it down a little bit, put him in a smarter you know in a smarter context. Uh, and then what the Safdie brothers did with Uncut Gems was they said, okay, well, Anderson did that with him. So let's take the impotent rage version of, you know, the, the that's my boy and, and Billy Madison version of Adam Sandler. And let's make him the main character of our gritty crime drama. And that's mm-hmm. and then they just twisted it a little bit to be more uh, a little more worrisome than that. And so, yeah, I mean, it's interesting to watch those two as kind of the the almost the epitome uh of his kind of two modes um and it's and it's fun uh and i think that he he found a good middle ground with funny people in that regard mm-hmm. he he kind of found something in the middle of the two um because mm-hmm. he's playing a comic but he's also kind of he's playing somebody who's dying so yeah i i just um i love him in serious mode i love his, his some of his best movies are are or his best movies are the ones where he does take it a little more seriously, even though he is a guy who is obviously dedicated to his craft. I admire him as a person and I admire him when he takes on roles like this, where it stretches mm-hmm. his capabilities a little bit. Yeah. I love it. So, well, yeah. I knew that that was coming. Uh, <laughs> so as soon <laughs> yeah. as, as yeah. soon as you rewatched it and your little blurb, he, Chad posts blurbs on Facebook and, and letterboxd and, and all and talks about it on Twitter and stuff. Some sometimes. As soon as I saw that, and I knew that we were doing this, I was like, "Okay, so that's probably his number one," uh, <laughs> because it was Am I that predictable. <laughs> well, it was it was just that you know high praise. So, mm-hmm. well, I won't say much about my number one, which is one that you already mentioned at number six. Uh, it's Minority Report, uh, Steven Spielberg's other film, which is uh, amazing. I have a weird relationship with this one. I saw it in theaters. Um, and I feel like I was expecting something that it wasn't giving me. So for a couple years there, when I saw it in theaters, I didn't like it. I said that I didn't like it just because I didn't really understand what it was going for. I didn't really understand the, the, and I don't know why, because I was like 12, I was smart, but I, I guess it was just like the, the tone of it was weird and, and really dark. And I was expecting something lighter because I was used to Raiders of the Lost Ark, Spielberg, the person who puts up adventures and and all of that, and this was an adventure, but it's a darker adventure. And you already ran through the plot. It's a it's a fascinating, just works like clockwork. Um, both the the vision of its world, which is really really on the level of you know films like Blade Runner and Dark City and and Spielberg's own AI, 
um, in Metropolis and, and films like that that are just visionary uh, landscapes. Um, you know, I love this film's version of of um, Washington, D.C. And um, uh, the performances, I, I think it's one of Tom Cruise's best performances. I think it's possibly his best performance in a uh, movie star context. And that's saying a lot. I, I, I don't say that lightly. I think that it is. Um, there's something a little more desperate. And I think that that's, that's uh, the key. Uh, Max von Sydow, great, uh, great actor. I mean, God rest his soul. <laughs> I love the guy um, for films like Seventh Seal and, and really any, I mean, even Hannah and her sisters, just great actor. He fits in perfectly here. It's such a, it's such a weird bit of casting. It's not one you anticipate, mm-hmm. but, um, but yeah, I love it. I love Samantha Morton is haunting as one of the, these precognitive beings. Um, and it doesn't become any less interesting when it becomes about the pieces of the plot and the mystery come together, coming together. As soon as it, you know, like you said, as soon as it um, ends with explaining the rules and also kind of uh, reels back on giving us something to look at um, in terms of like uh, defining its world visually. Once it once we settle into that and it's just about the mystery, man, it's no less interesting. It's it's heartbreaking. It really ties into Cruz's character in a big way. And uh, yeah, this is another one where it's about characters ultimately. And um, as much as it's about you know rules and sci-fi stuff and and all of that, and and in that mode, it's fantastic. So yeah, I love it. Um, it's my number one. It was a it was a tough fight in this last twenty four hours since I since I watched Punch Drunk Love again I almost went with that as my number one we might have shared it yeah, uh, I was kind of I was kind of hoping it might win out over whatever, yeah whatever, whatever it was, was yeah so. and it was so close I just had to go with the one that I've been going with as the answer for so long you know it could change and 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 like I said at the beginning this you know like more than half of these choices I could have just thrown up in the air. And they could have come down in some other way. Catch me if you can. Perfectly fine, number one. I would have been fine with that. You know, Femme Fatale. I, I, I just, I love all the movies on my list. Um, this is a particularly strong year. 2001 is very strong, too, and I'll get into that next week, but or next uh, next month. Uh, sometime in this month. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, I love it. So, that is my number one. All right, well, quick recap, just name by name. Uh, tell us, once again, your top ten. Right, so at number 10, I have The Born Identity. Uh, number 9, The Ring, uh, the Gore Verbinski uh, horror remake. Uh, number 8, Pedro Almodovar's Talk to Her. Uh, number 7, Road to Perdition. Uh, number 6, uh, Joel's Number 1, Minority Report. And uh, number 5, I have City of God. At number 4, I have uh, Catch Me If You Can. And number 3, I have 25th Hour. At number two, I have The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. And at number one, I have Punch Drunk Love. All right. Well, at number 10, I had 25th Hour. At number nine, I had The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. At number eight, Far From Heaven, the Todd Haynes film. Number seven, I had uh, Adaptation. At number uh, number six, I had Spirited Away. At number five, I had Femme Fatale. At number four, I also had Catch Me If You Can. At number three, Gangs of New York. At number two, I had Chad's number one, uh, Punch Drunk Love. And at number one, myself, Minority Report. So that is it, folks. That's our lists of the best films of 2002. Fantastic year. Could not uh, 
recommend these movies more. And um, yeah, I mean, we only really had one disagreement. So there you go. Right. Um, Which sometimes that can make a boring discussion. But I think think we kind of ate all the meat off. Yes. (laughs) Indeed. Um, Indeed. All right. Well, yeah, Chad, Chad, uh, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, where can people find you on uh, online? So uh, you can find me on Facebook, uh, Instagram, and Twitter. My Instagram and Twitter handles are at a wild chat appears. Uh, you can also uh, find my some of my writing and filmmaking work at jankusmedia.com. Mm, awesome. All right. Well, you guys know where to find me pretty much by now, but at, on Twitter, Real Joel Copling, on Letterboxd if you search my name. Um, and on, uh, my website, although it's kind of on pause right now, it is coming back. My website's coming back sometime this month. I'll be catching up with new movies and, and, uh, and going back to that. It's just been on pause while, uh, while everything lately has been figured out. Um, and yeah, uh, I think that's it. So guys, it's been great. Once again, please stay safe out there. Stay inside if it's, if it's necessary in your area or really just in general, mm-hmm. uh, right, right now, um, wash your hands. Don't yes, touch your face. exactly. Don't be like Andy Dwyer on parks and rec on the special last night. Uh, who, oh, who man, had, I, I missed it. <laughs> oh, you missed it. Okay. Well, there's, I don't want to, I, I really hate giving this away, but there's, there's the one bit where, uh, we find out that Andy is is exactly as unhygienic as we uh, we expect him to be. Is the fact that he is in fact a 38 year old man who before this had never washed his hands. So uh, <laughs> anyway, don't be like Andy Dwyer, guys. Oh my god. Yeah, it's great. Um, but uh, yeah, so just stay safe out there uh, and have a good May. I will be back in a couple of weeks to talk about the best films of 2001 with my friend Aaron Hunley. And, uh, yeah, so, uh, just stay tuned and I'll be back guys. It's been great. Have a good one. Chad, thank you for coming on once again. Right. Of course. It's uh it was a lot of fun. Um, uh, I enjoy it. Thank you again for having me. Yeah. And very successful for your first podcast. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, pop the cherry on here. There we go. Uh, yeah. It was a little rough at the beginning, but, uh, we got through it. <laughs> Yeah, it's, you know, it's podcasting. There you go. So, all right. Bye-bye, guys. All right. Peace.